Well, it's a great privilege to uh, be uh, here with you guys tonight. It's what Clint said, uh, 36 years ago, last month, I went out to Iowa from uh, Chicago. And uh, this, uh, been out in this, roughly this part of the country ever since, Northwest Iowa and then, um, uh, and then in uh, South Dakota. And I've, we've got quite a few people in our congregation from Nebraska, so I know you, you don't like to be compared to like Iowa and South Dakota. Uh, it's kind of a step up here. But I've been in Nebraska enough to know that you, you actually have uh, many of the same amazing qualities that, um, uh, that they have in places like Iowa and, and South Dakota. And uh, coming... Coming out there uh, from Chicago 36 years ago, I, I could still remember my wife and I opening. We went down to the Central Bank there in Storm Lake, Iowa, and um, and opened our accounts, you know, with like $50. But the experience uh, when, when we unloaded our accounts at Chicago, I mean, every time in Chicago, like if you went to the bank, it's like, oh, brother, you know, what are you doing here? It was that sort of attitude. And out in this part of the country, I, my wife and I stepped out and they just treated us like kings, you know, in that bank, like you were, like you were an important customer. And I thought, like, where are we? I mean, this is amazing. Um, and so those of you who have lived here uh, all your life, uh, I can tell you, you're tremendously blessed. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a great uh, part of the country. I've been out this way now for 36 years and uh, just feel so blessed to, uh, to be out in this part uh, for four and a half years where Clint said, uh, I could literally see out my front window of the parsonage, I could see the grain elevators from Albert City. They were about 15 miles uh, away, and uh, but they had some uh, a fairly large grain elevators in Albert City, extra large for the community surrounding uh, there. And so, yeah, Clint would have been 10 years old uh, when I showed up there um, at uh, 27 years of, of age. And um, anyways, uh, uh, just before I uh, direct our attention to the Bible and to our text, a, a group that Clint and I are part of, and Clint's a really key part of it, Clint's about four times better organized than I am, and so he, uh, he organizes our pastor's group, he gets the emails out to everybody, he makes sure everybody's on the same page, he sends out reminders uh, to when we're supposed to meet, um, but, but that group, uh, that group started meeting uh, 34 years ago. And has met uh, continuously. A group of pastors have read things once a month. It used to be, and now it's about once every other month. Uh, for the past 34 years, the very first thing uh, that we read together was Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is kind of his systematic theology. It was his. Uh, he wrote it the first time he wrote it. It was he was 27 years old, and then he updated it five times. So that the last time he updated it, he was 50. He only lived to be 54, so that was pretty close uh, to the end of his life. But uh, Clint sent me the brochure on your men's group and what you're doing here, and it made me think of, um, of uh, Calvin's preface to the final edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion 
and he was arguing for why, why would somebody write a book like this and edit it five times in a row. And so try to follow with me. It's a, it's a decent light paragraph, but it lands where, where what Clint is trying to get going here. It lands right there. Here's what he wrote. Although Holy Scripture contains a perfect doctrine to which one can add nothing, since in it our Lord has meant to display the infinite treasures of his wisdom. Yet a person who has not much practice in it has good reason for some guidance and direction to know what he ought to look for in it so as not to wander here and there, but to hold for a sure path that he may always be pressing forward to the end for which the Holy Spirit calls him. Perhaps the duty of those who receive from God some fuller light than others is to help people at this point, and as it were, to lend them a hand in order to guide them and help them to find the sum of what God meant to teach us in his word. Now that cannot be better done through the scripture than to treat the chief and weightiest matters comprised in the Christian philosophy, which is what that little book by Wayne Grudem is trying to do. It's an outline. Here's, here's really, really important themes that are in the Bible. And then Calvin says this about what that does for you. For he who knows these things will be prepared to profit more in God's school in one day than another man in three months, particularly as he knows fairly well what must be be referred to each sentence and has this rule to embrace all that is presented to him. In other words, a book like the Institutes, Calvin says, helps you, helps you know what to look for when you're just reading through your Bible. And it'll stand out to you. And the really important stuff, you'll start to notice it. And notice that it, it's repeated uh, uh, fairly often and we're going to come back to your, your, your brochure at the, at the end of this uh, as well. But I, I just, you know, I read that brochure and, and what, uh, what Clint is attempting to do is really um, important and I, in, in encouraging to see. And I would just encourage you uh, not to underestimate what it'll do for you if you participate in something like this and read those things and um, and pay attention to them. Now, if you if you got this outline, um, it's not really the key. I went back and forth as to whether or not I should even uh, uh, print an outline. But, um, you know, this is a little intimidating to come um, and and speak for 75 minutes. You know, I'm, I'm used to trying to keep people's attention for 40 minutes. Well, 75 is quite a bit longer than that. Uh, so at the very least, um, you know, this, this outline, and it's double-sided, so don't, uh, you know, don't get overly excited about how fast we seem to be getting through the outline because then you flip it over and, uh, and start again with the two main topics that, uh, that, that Clint gave me. So justification and reconciliation and how 
What's the foundation of what it means to be a Christian? And then the second piece of the assignment was, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you have, how do you have assurance? How do you have a certainty um, in, your, in your faith? Um, and those are two really, really important questions. And the, uh, and the second one, I think, is exceedingly difficult to manage well. Uh, that is, it's, e- it's easy. I-, I think the first one is relatively straightforward um, if, you're, if you kind of got your finger on the, on, on the text. But the, the second one has a lot of nuances in it. And, uh, and the challenges uh, to, get, to getting that sort of in a helpful way in our minds, I don't think is easy, but it's exceedingly important, almost unbelievably important. Uh, but let's, uh, let's go, so if, if you have your Bible, we'll start in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, really verse 21, but I'll read verses 20 and 21, um, and this goes to the uh, uh, reconciliation and justification question. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, here's where we're actually going to focus. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, I, I don't know if you guys like, how many of you like biographies, uh, or, you know, uh, it's, uh, Christian biography has been a, a great encouragement to me uh, throughout my life, and probably the, the best single biography that I have ever uh, read was a, ma- it's a massive thing, two volumes by a guy by the name of Al, um, Arnold Dallimore uh, about the uh, evangelist George Whitfield. Um, he, he wrote it while he was pastoring a Baptist church up in Canada. It's, uh, it's you know, a better part of a thousand pages long. But in the middle of it, he has a chapter on a Welsh evangelist by the name of Howell Harris. And he describes Howell Harris there in, uh, in, in Wales uh, 200 years ago. And, uh, and, and Howell Harris would run his evangelism this way. So he'd, he'd walk up to somebody on the... The, the street, and, and, and he might, and he just would say to them, Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that, you, that your sins are forgiven? Are you certain that your sins are forgiven? Uh, that's, that struck me. You know, when I, when, when I was a kid, you know, a bold evangelist, we, you'd hear guys in our church would use the uh, the, the, the terminology, do you know you're saved? Do you know you're saved? Um, you know, uh, the evangelism explosion stuff. If you were to die tonight and God were to ask you why she'd let you into heaven, what would, what would you say? Well, well, how Harris's attempt at that was to simply put that really straightforward question. Um, do you know that your sins are forgiven. 
Now, in this text uh, that, we're, that we've just read and we're going about to come back to and look at in some detail, uh, you could also put it this way. Do you know that God made someone sin for you that you might be right with him? Do you know that? Do you know that you're, that's your only hope? That God made somebody sin for you that you might have the opportunity to be uh, right with God. Uh, when I was a kid, we, we often sang this, uh, this hymn in our congregations, uh, Philip Bliss hymn, I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love for me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse and set me free. Oh, sing, oh, sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross, he sealed my pardon, paid my debt, and set me free. Paid my debt and, and set me free. Well, that's at the essence of, that's how our debt was paid. The, the Father made the Son sin for us. Now, back to Calvin. Um, you know, Calvin certainly in the Reformation, he's, he is the greatest commentary, prop, commentator probably in the history of the church. And certainly uh, the Institutes was the systematic theology of the Reformation. Um, and, and he's just Bible all, all, all his life. Well, in the Institutes, Calvin says, the single, the single most helpful verse in the Bible, in his opinion, for understanding justification is 2 Corinthians 5.21. So this, this, this text that we're just going to walk through uh, this evening, at least John Calvin, he thought uh, this, is, this, is the, this is as good as it gets for seeing an outline of how salvation Work. So, so we're going to start out with the opening phrase here. I've put this heading over it in your outline. Uh, we are to notice the logic of salvation, or the logical nature of salvation. I got a misprint there. So it just should be, we should notice the logic of salvation. And that's the, that's the broad outline of the way the Reformation took verse 21. Uh, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become uh, the righteousness of God. Now, that, that's a perfectly fine translation, but that's not the word order of the, of the Greek text. Here's, what, here's the word order in the Greek New Testament. The one not knowing sin, in behalf of us, he made sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. So what, what the verse opens with, how, how Paul put it is, the very first thing he says, he fronts it for emphasis, the one not knowing sin. The one not knowing sin. Now, of course, by that, he doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know anything about sin. Um, uh, that he was not very expert on it or didn't... No, he, he simply means the one who had 
absolutely no experience of sinning. Uh, Jesus being the only person, the only human being who ever lived who falls into that category. It's the only one who, who never knew uh, sin in, in, in that way. Um, Hebrews 4.15, I, I just noted on there, makes that, that point explicitly. Uh, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here's this unique, absolutely unique person, the only person ever lived. Him who knew no sin... And then the text, the next thing that Paul wrote was, in behalf of us. In behalf of us. Um, I was uh, listening, uh, amazingly, uh, on the way, way down, uh, um, you know, John sharing about the app that he uses. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of not very sanctifying stuff that comes our way by means of technology. But there's also amazingly sanctifying stuff that, 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 that comes our way. Uh, when, when I lived out on that, uh, um, that, at that parsonage in that uh, church in Iowa that Clint uh, mentioned, it was uh, seven miles from the, the nearest town, um, which that didn't bother me much, but my wife was raised in Minneapolis. She felt a little bit like out in the middle of nowhere uh, in, in, in that cornfield, but I... I, I loved it out there, and in those years that I lived out there, one thing that I, uh, that I did was I, I read straight through uh, eight volumes of sermons on the book of Ephesians that Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, had preached uh, and then written out and published and so forth. Well, now, uh, now you, I mean, you get an app, and all of his sermons are, are, are on that. I listened to two of them on the way down uh, here today from Ephesians, uh, uh, chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And um, it, just, just an absolute um, amazing experience. But anyways, on the way down, what he was talking about was back in the 50s when he was preaching these sermons, what was going on in Great Britain, it was really popular to talk about the... Uh, uh, the, you know, the fatherhood of God, the universal fatherhood of God. So, of course, everybody can know God as their father, you know. So everybody's a Christian, um, in a sense. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, he was arguing exactly the opposite. No, 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 no. When, when Paul uses this language here, he made him who knew no sin in behalf of us. He's not talking about everybody. The us is defined much more narrowly, narrowly than that. You know, so the, the us, uh, for instance, Paul, and this is in your outline there, Paul in uh, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's the us. Nobody outside that category is in the us. Who's this us? It's everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. Uh, they will be saved or actually, um, really, really uh, striking, uh, John uh, 1, 12. Uh, for, as, 
many as received him. He gave the right to become the children of God. And then he says the same thing that he opens with a second time. Even those who believe on his name. That's the us. That's the us. So you you don't just have God as your father. The only people that have God as their father is this us. And they're defined as those who have called upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, those who have received him, those who are, it's actually a present participle there, those who are believing on his name. That's who he's talking about, no one else. No one else. So the one who he made sin, he did so in behalf of us, and by us, he means those who believe, and only those who believe. Um, and as Isaiah 53, 6 says, we were all sheep who went astray, but we have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Paul is just repeating that. How Isaiah put it, Paul puts it, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And so suddenly we are in this absolutely uh, unique situation. But notice the logic of the text. Uh, back to uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So here's the logic of it. The one not knowing sin... In behalf of us, he made sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is where the Reformation speaks of something called double imputation. Right? So the first imputation is he made him who knew no sin to be sin. So our sins are imputed to Jesus, even though he didn't commit any of them. They're placed on him. So he's the one who suffers for them in our place. Now, the logic of the passage, and this is how Calvin took it, this is how Luther took it, this is how the entire Reformation uh, took it. They took it as a double imputation that we might become the righteousness of God, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. As we'll see in a moment, that's the logic of the passage. But you can't miss the fact that it's not actually the language of the passage. He doesn't use the term imputation there. He doesn't say uh, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that he might impute to us The righteousness of God. He doesn't say that. That is the logic of the passage, though, because in the first half of the equation, it's clear our sins are imputed to Christ. And therefore, it's heavily implied in the second half that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. But it's also tremendously important, I think, that we pick up on the fact the language doesn't quite move that way. 
And so that's our second uh, point. We are to notice the language of our salvation. Um, uh, now, this, uh, this, this language, actually, of course, is make, makes... Um, you know, Reformation sorts, and I'm a Reformation sort, uh, makes us nervous. Um, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, that's the language, we might become the righteousness of God. That sounds works-oriented, that sounds, that sounds, that's supposed to make that's supposed to make a, a justification person just a little bit uncomfortable, that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, but there's no getting around it. That is the language uh, that, that, that Paul used. Um, and so... The logic is very double imputation ask, and that's how the Reformation took the whole thing. Just, well, there it is. Our sins imputed to Jesus, his righteousness imputed to us. The essence of justification. That's why Calvin thinks this text is just the best, because it lays it out uh, in, in his mind uh, really clearly like that. Uh, but somebody like uh, 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 I Michael Horton, I put down there. Michael Horton wrote uh, this sentence. Now, Michael Horton, I don't know if you've ever uh, read anything by Michael Horton. He is, he's written a, uh, um, a systematic theology that would parallel Wayne Grudem's. It's not as readable. Um, I, I wasn't actually a big fan of it other than, I mean, it's a great title. He had a much better title. His, uh, the title of his... Uh, systematic theology was the Christian faith, a systematic theology for pilgrims on the way. That's a great title. Uh, for pilgrims on the way. Love that title. Um, and I and also love this, this sentence as he makes uh, uh, this point. Well, they are distinct, the organic and the legal are two sides of the same coin. Now, now, here's what he means by that. The legal is this double imputation thing. That's, that's a, the, usually referred to that as legal terminology of forensic categories. Our sins placed on Christ, and then Christ's righteousness placed on us. That's what he means by legal. But what he means by organic is the language in that verse. That we might become the righteousness of God. You know, it's to watch us as evangelicals sometimes, right? Um, uh, I, I, grew, I grew up in church, and so one of the... Uh, uh, text that probably by the time I was in fifth grade for sure I had memorized was Ephesians 2 8 and 9 for by grace you are saved through faith that not of yourself is a gift of God not as a result of works in order that no one should boast but there's only one more verse to the end of the paragraph why didn't we put that in there 
because it complicates what, what the point of the first two was. Um, not as a result of works. So no, it's nothing that you do. But then the next verse says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There's that organic piece jumping right in. So Paul wasn't so nervous about, oh, I don't want to mess up this nice legal piece that I just said. Um, no, I'm willing to mess it up. I'm willing to at least flesh it out. And, and Horton's point is, it's just the second side of the same coin. It's just the same coin. Uh, you can look at it from the legal side. You can look at it from the organic side. And in one of the Reformed confessions, not you know widely uh, referred to, but you may have heard of it, it's the Helvetic con uh, confession, written about the time that Calvin died. Um, but here's what, uh, here's what they wrote on this topic in the Helvetic confession. Wherefore, in this manner, we are speaking, we are not speaking of a fictitious, lazy, dead faith, but a living, quickening faith. It is, and it is called a living faith because it apprehends Christ, who is life, and makes alive, and shows that it is alive by living works. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, when you read about uh, Paul's ethic, reading the epistles of, of Paul and um, how Paul handles morality, ethics, is, is largely this. Here's Paul's philosophy on how you should think about living out your life. Be who you are. Be who you are. Who are you? You're a child of God. So live like a child of God. Be who you are. Don't say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God, but I'm, I'm that on the basics of this, this great exchange, and so my works don't come into it. So I can be a child of God and live like the devil. I can be a child of heaven and live like hell. No, 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 Paul says, don't do that. Be who you are. Be who you are. Uh, live out your child of God status. By becoming righteous. Thirdly, um, we are to remain in the location of salvation. Um, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if, if you notice, when I just freely translated uh, uh, the, the word order in the, in the Greek New Testament, the in him is the last thing in the sentence. 
Um, the one not knowing sin in behalf of us, he made sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. Now that's really key. That's really key. It was a perfect, uh, John, you gave a perfect segue as, as, you, were, as, as you were sharing to this, to this next uh, to this next point, um, um, I'm uh, I'm uh, this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to make two references to uh, 1970s song lyrics tonight. I make lots of references to 1970s song lyrics. I was in high school then, and I listened to a lot of songs uh, then, and a, and a and a lot of uh, albums. And one of the uh, one of the people that I uh, uh, like somewhat uh, was uh, was John Denver, uh, and John Denver, uh, his most famous song of of all, uh, you know, he put he put evangelical sort of language embedded into it very purposely. He's not he wasn't trying to make a big point. He's just I think he borrowed it because he thought it was the best language that would reflect to his his experience. And if you Remember what John shared a little bit along these lines about creation? You know, this, this is what John Denver is expressing, right? He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he'd never been before. He left yesterday behind him. You might say he was born again. You might say he found the key to every door. And then he sings through the second, and then he just goes and tells you what he's talking about. He's a Colorado Rocky Mountain High. Uh, that is the glory of God in the creation. Denver sees it. He feels it. He writes about it. And in so doing, uh, he is uh, mimicking his spiritual hero, uh, Another John, John Muir. John Muir is the uh, he's the founder of the Sierra Club, launcher of the Green Movement. John Muir was raised in a Presbyterian home. His father was extraordinarily authoritarian, but devoted to discipling his sons, not necessarily in the most biblical manner. And so uh, uh, his father. Uh, would beat John if John failed to memorize the Bible as he was supposed to. And he had a serious memory program for his son. And so that by the time when, when Muir left home at 15, Muir could recite the entire New Testament by heart and two-thirds of the Old Testament by heart. King James Bible. And if, you've ever, if you ever read the writings of John Muir, you will see that acquaintance with the King James Bible on every page. It made him an extraordinarily gifted writer. And, and, that, and, the, and the Psalms and so forth just come bleeding through uh, Muir's experience of uh, the Sierra Range out in California and in, in, in nature. Um, in, in general, um, and he uses that same kind of, of language that John Denver did. It's the Psalm 19 language. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Day-to-day -day pours forth speech. You can't miss it. 
And they don't miss it. They didn't miss it. They threw their arms around it. They loved it. The glory of God. But the problem is, the problem is, there is no salvation there. It doesn't do you any good to merely experience the glory of God in the created order. It does not. It does not. The only safe place you can possibly be, the only location where salvation takes place is in him, is in Christ. And John Muir wasn't interested in Christ. And John Denver was not interested in Christ. They're interested in God and his creation. Loved it. Wrote songs about it. Muir wrote essays about it. Founded the Sierra Club to honor it. Talked a ton about worshiping God in the mountains. Nothing about Christ. Paul warns us. That will get you nowhere. That'll get you nowhere. Your only hope is Christ. Now, just one, just one other before we uh, go to that conclusion there. The, uh, I'm, I'm just going to do one of those three verses I've got. Uh, so Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us to be, there it is, in him, in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. There's that organic piece. He chose us to be in him. But that we should be holy and blameless. And so just as we wrap up this first part before going to assurance, see, do you understand how God-driven your salvation is? If, if you've ended up with with a, a genuine interest. Um, like, I mean, there, 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 there's people, you know, uh, back to the testimonies that were given, to Andy's testimony, you know, about how he tries to every day, every day. There's people here that say, what's the matter with you? Are you nuts? Are you nuts? Um, sounds cult-like. I don't like the sound of that. What you... Well, there's lots of things you could do in the morning. That is, just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You see Paul's explanation? It's God-driven. He chose us in him. He chose Andy before the foundation of the world. That's why he cares about that. That's where that came from. He didn't just come up with it. God did that. It's God-driven and secondly, notice, uh, it's tremendously faith-related. This us, is, it's, it's those who have received Christ. It's those who are believing in his name. It's those who are becoming holy and blameless before him. Through that faith. That's who he's talking about. He's not talking about anybody else. 
So it's tremendously faith-related. We'll come back to how two unbreakably tied those two things are. And then it's Christ-focused. It's in Him. Doesn't matter how moved you are by Pike's Peak. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't mean how moved you are. My wife and I were up back uh, this, this fall to the, where well, we were both in Glacier and then we were down in the Grand Tetons, uh, which that's, my, that's probably my favorite park in the world is the Grand Teton National Park, that range that you drive along there if you've ever been there. It's, it's just, doesn't matter. If that's all you got is the glory of God there, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. Uh, you have to have it. You have to have it in, in Christ. Uh, and so then the second thing that, uh, Kent, that uh, Clint asked me to address is so assurance. How do you know that you've got that? How do you know that you've got that? Um, I, don't, I don't know how you know Reformation related your your thinking is up in up in Sioux Falls. Uh, we have a lot of people at our church that came out of the Dutch Reformed tradition because just right over the border, you know, in Iowa, there's lots of uh, there's lots of Dutch people hanging out over there, and some of them have moved to Sioux Falls, and so there's 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 plenty of that going on. But some of those some of the traditionally Reformed uh, denominations um, have sh shifted uh, a, a bit, and so, so then their then their people go looking for some place where the Bible shows up again. Um, and so I've gotten to know uh, quite a number of those people. But but in in that tradition, uh, you know, back when they were sort of trying to defend themselves against what they took to be uh, apparent. Uh, theological perspective, and we were just uh, visiting uh, before the meeting started tonight about, um, um, you know, uh, the Tulip Festival there in northwestern Iowa. Um, well, they liked, in the Reformed tradition, Tulip is, uh, is, is both a, a flower they like and, a, and an acronym uh, that, they, that they really like. And so the, the Tulip acronym, uh, theologically speaking, the T is total depravity. The U is unconditional election. The L is limited uh, atonement. And then the I is irresistible grace. And then the P is where we're landing. Uh, perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. Um, 40, uh, 42 years ago when I was first married, um, um, I, uh, my wife and I met at the Moody Bible Institute, and um, Moody at that time uh, was a it was a, a three year program, not a four year. So you had to finish off your bachelor's degree somebody somewhere else. So you'd go to Moody, and then I went out to Judson um, College to finish mine, and then on to Trinity uh, to to seminary. But we took a year off when we got married, and uh, I worked in a factory running brake rotors uh, that year for the Eklund Corporation, and, uh, and I would, while I was doing that, I would, in the evenings, I would read as much theology as my wife would, 
would let me. And so the day I dream, you know, someday it's going to be my job to read these, to, to read these things. And it, and it became that for the last 36 years. Uh, that, that has been a part of my daily job, and I haven't forgotten how, how grateful I, 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 I am uh, for that. I mean, just like, whoo. Uh, it's, it's amazing. In fact, I'll, I'll put in one extra song lyric um, uh, that related to that time. James Taylor came out with an album called Flag right as I went in and, and, and took that job. And all the songs on that particular album were work-related. And the most famous on the album was a, a song called Mill Worker. I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh, but it, uh, it tells the story of a woman who ends up working in the mills in... Uh, in, in Massachusetts, and the, and the lyrics of the song open this way. My grandfather was a sailor. He blew in off the water. My father was a farmer, and I, his only daughter, I took up with a no-good mill-working man from Massachusetts who died from too much whiskey and left me these three faces to feed. Well, millwork ain't easy, and millwork ain't hard. Millwork, it ain't nothing but an awful, boring job. And I'm waiting for a daydream to take me through the morning and put me in my coffee break where I can have a sandwich and remember that it's me and my machine for the rest of the morning and for the rest of the afternoon on for the rest of my life. So I'd, I'd stand between my machines, listen to that, thinking, whoa. Yeah, I'm glad I'm... That's not my view for myself. I'm hoping not that this isn't for... But, but, but I would think to myself, Wow, and it became so. Like it's, for, for now, for me, the last 36 years, it's been me and my Greek New Testament and my, my Hebrew Bible and my, you know, my, my Calvin's Institutes for the rest of the morning and for the rest of the afternoon on for the rest of my life. That's a dream come true for somebody like me. That's like, whoa, the very, the, the very, very uh, reverse. All that to say, one of the things I read those evenings that year was uh, uh, Burkhauer's Dogmatics. And he has a volume on perseverance. And in the introduction of that volume, here's what he wrote. And you've got to listen to this carefully, but if you listen carefully, it's an amazing statement, what he says about your experience and mine if we're genuinely born again. He says, according to this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, he means, according to this doctrine, there is an apparently an event that cannot be reversed, a decision that cannot be undone, a course that is entered upon once and for all. As John says in 1 John 3.14, we have passed from death unto life. What the doctrine ultimately has in view is not an experience of consolation that flickers and dies and flickers again in the shadows of life's uncertainties. It is not an experience of joyful communion, you know, it is not an experience of joyful communion with the Lord that perhaps tomorrow could be partially and later even totally threatened and destroyed. But it is a continuity amidst all the transitoriness of our lives. As we proceed by devious paths through numberless circumstances and dangers toward the consummation, toward the day of Jesus Christ, 
Now, that's a different thing from sort of an easy, breezy uh, sort of assurance that says, well, once saved, always saved. That's okay, but you have to qualify that way too much. Perseverance, as we'll see, uh, helps you qualify it uh, more naturally. And so here's, here's the text, and it's usually this one that always comes up in the discussion of the perseverance of the saints. 1 John 2, 18 to 21. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have the anointing by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Um, so the first thing, and we'd have to just touch this quickly, because to be spiritually saved, you have to know what time it is. To be spiritually safe, to persevere, one of the ways God does that and produces that is you have to know what time it is. You hear what time it is according to him? It's the last hour. Now, this is where skeptics says, oh, yeah, well, there you go. That's how you know. The Bible is nonsense. It's the last hour. That's 2,000 years ago. Well, if you feel that as a powerful argument, I understand why you would, but you have no good reason to feel that as a, as a powerful argument. In other words, the entire Old Testament sets the stage for language like that, especially the Psalms. Next time you're reading through the Psalms, notice how many times it will promise you that the righteous will be vindicated. The righteous will be vindicated. The righteous will be vindicated. Don't worry. The righteous will be vindicated. Well, again, as, as, as the, uh, I think it was Andy, that was when he was sharing about reading the time of the exile, the righteous aren't vindicated in the exile. They die in Babylon. Being laughed at. Right? The psalm. Hey, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Get out your harps. Let's have a song. They heard that all their lives, and then they died. That's how it went. What about this righteous will be vindicated? Eschatological language. That is, there's a day coming for certain. Righteous will be vindicated. That's what he's mean. That's all he's saying right here. It's the last hour. By that he means what wasn't true at the time of the exile. That is, at the time of the exile, there wasn't just one great event left. The next great event was coming of Christ. John is saying, now there's just one great event left, the second coming of Christ. That's it. When that falls, that's it. That's what he means. It's the last hour. The next thing, the next thing to happen is final judgment 
final coming of Christ. And, and so uh, Jesus, when talking to his disciples, he said, now you've got to keep that in mind. Uh, and so here's how he talked to them and to us through them. Um, Mark, that's the Mark 30, uh, 13, 33 to 37. Uh, three different times in this passage. The uh, ESV has it, stay awake. Uh, Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves his home, and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he suddenly come and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Remember what time it is. It's the last hour. Stay awake, he says. Stay awake. My final song lyric. So... My family moved to, uh, we were originally from Illinois. My parents, uh, you know, uh, wanted to work with native people. And so they started training to be missionaries. And I was hoping that the training would take long enough that, uh, that I would not be with them uh, when they went. But that didn't work out that way. Uh, my older brother and sister escaped safely. Um, and then I moved to Canada in 1974 to Fort St. James. Uh, with my parents, and the Lord does all things well, but at the time, I, I didn't see it that way, and so I wasn't thrilled um, uh, with that, and, uh, and by, by going up there and mo moving, you know, what seemed like the end of the world, about 450 miles um, north of Vancouver, um, in, in what they call the Central Interior, uh, there's no decent radio stations or anything, and so I, I really took into popular um, music and, uh, of all things, uh, ended up landing on, uh, especially in, in early in high school and middle high school, uh, the, the, the shallowest singer, really, who has ever existed was, was my favorite, um, uh, Elton John. Elton John. He never wrote a lyric. Uh, uh, Clint and I have a mutual friend who, uh, who just recently read Elton John's autobiography, and he kept sending me texts, you can't believe how shallow this guy is. You know? um, uh, but anyway, uh, Ber Bernie Taupin, uh, Elton John never wrote one word. So all, the, all those for first 10 years, particularly when he was the thing, the words were written by a farm kid uh, who had left the farm and come to London, and they link up in his name. Was, was Bernie Taupin, and Bernie Taupin had some Christianity in his background, and again, if you, if you ever listen to Elton John lyrics, um, you'll, you'll hear those lyrics all, all, all over the place. Well, in 1975, they, they, set, a, they set a record. In, in other words, uh, they, they had an album that before it was actually released, it pre-sold so massively that it was, uh, you know, it was like double gold or platinum before the first disc actually rolled off the press. And Newsweek ran Elton John on the front cover in uh, July of 1975 about that album. And the album was called Captain Fantastic, that was Elton John, and The Brown Dirt Cowboy, that was Bernie Taupin. It was their autobiographical album. And the very first song on the album 
is called Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. And in the middle of that song, Toppin wrote these words. And all this talk of Jesus coming back to see us couldn't fool us. All this talk of Jesus coming back to see us. No. In other words, it's not the last hour. It's not the last hour. Good grief. There's no last hour. We're not in danger of final judgment. There's no final judgment. There's no answering to anybody. No. All this talk of Jesus coming back to see us. No. Couldn't fool us. Well, that was actually helpful to me as a, as a kid to figure out, like, whoa, this guy I listened to, he's really anti-everything I believe. Right? Yeah, that was good to know. That was, that was good to know. To be spiritually safe, not only do you have to know what time it is, but you have to know what to beware of. And we're, gonna, we're just going to fast forward on this because I want to get to the next... Uh, uh, the, I, I need to get to the last piece of this. So the next two we're going to take uh, pretty quickly. So we're not even going to veer over to the Second Thessalonians passage. But just take, take a note of uh, the, the language uh, that's used um, here in the middle of our text in 1 John, beginning in verse um, 18 again. Children, it's the last hour, just as you have heard. Antichrist is coming. And now, already, many, many Antichrists have gone out. And by this we know it's the last hour. Now, John's the only author in the New Testament who actually uses the term Antichrist. Uh, I had that other text in there, and, and that's 2 Thessalonians. Paul's version is the man of sin. is the ultimate expression of, of Antichrist. But John is telling us, look, don't think primarily in terms of the last great person of evil to arise. There is such a person. But don't think just about that. Many antichrists are already there. The antichrist threat is all around you, every day, all the time. It's not just the, the occasional Hitler. It's not just Stalin. It's not... No, no, many antichrists. And he's thinking particularly within the church community. There's antichrists really close to home. And, uh, and they are representing themselves as Christianity. Back to Moody Bible Institute. When, uh, when I was a student there from 1976 to 1979, you had to take a course in uh, what was called contemporary Theology, a guy by the name of Stan Gundry taught that course. Uh, Dr. Gundry was a really excellent teacher, and you, you read a variety of textbooks, but the, the most memorable one was by a guy by the name of J. Gresham Machen, who had written a book back in the 1930s called Liberalism and, uh, and Christianity, in which he, he basically argued, he goes, okay, let's look, at, let's look at like eight cardinal doctrines. So again, back to your your book there by Grudem, he says, let's just take eight of those Grudem chapters and compare what the Lutheran church 
ELCA is saying about those things and what Christians have said about those things down through the centuries. And guess what you'll find out? The Lutheran Church, ELCA, is not Christianity. <laughs> what they claim to believe about the Bible is what Christians have never believed about the Bible. What they claim Jesus is is what Christians have never believed Jesus is. In other words, he said that, that was the thesis of the book. Liberalism is not Christianity. That, that's what he wrote in the 1930s. That was, the, that was, his, that was his clarion cry. Um, now, John would have even been bolder than that. John, John would have called his book um, Liberalism and Antichrist. They're the same thing. <laughs> that would have been John's title. Well, Liberalism and Antichrist, one and the same. You know, two peas in a pod. But don't miss this. Uh, if, if, you ever, if you ever listen to something like National Public Radio, the real Christians are the Lutheran Church, ELCA, Presbyterian Church, USA. What Machen argued is not Christianity. NPR argues, no, 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 no. That's the only authentic Christianity there is. People who have historic Christian beliefs are extremists, dangerous, fools, white supremacists. They're bad, very bad, very bad. That's what you'll hear over and over and over and over and over again. And that is why, that is why it's so important to notice what John goes on to say here in the next uh, thing. And I have to cover these last two points in five minutes. So here we go. This will be very, very quick. In fact, the first one I'm just going to do with a single story. Um, um, spiritually, the spiritually safe pay attention. Or the spiritually safe, what it means, they know what it means when somebody abandons the faith. And the short answer is they know that they were never in the faith. That, that's, the most, that's what makes this particular text so powerful because the logic of it is if somebody goes out they were never in he says it in such a way that you can't it can't mean anything else that's what he means and so um, um, let's see it's been 15 uh, 15 years ago I went to something called together for the gospel which is a great pastor's conference and um, loved it. Uh, but at that time, uh, that was the first year that it ever met. And, uh, and they were in this ballroom and we were just shoulder to shoulder. They had a thousand guys in a room that held 999 is what they had. That's how it was. There literally was not an empty chair anywhere. You sat shoulder to shoulder in there and, and, um, and you could try to approach the speakers up front. Well, I remember went up, going up with a friend of mine, and he pointed over there and said, oh, look at there, that's, that's Josh Harris. Josh Harris, who wrote a book that sold more than a million copies, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and he had become the pastor of a church of 3,000 uh, people out in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And, oh, there's Josh Harris, you know. And it, yeah, he's a celebrity. I'm not going to go over and introduce myself to him, but there he is. You know, I mean, that's a big time. He became a millionaire as a pastor. You know, and then three years ago, of course, he just left his wife and children and 
made the announcement. I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't believe any of that stuff. You say, well, how did that happen? Here's John's answer. He was never a Christian. That's how that happened. Oh, come on. He wrote this best-selling book. He pastored a church of 3,000 people. Never a Christian, John would say. Never. They go out from us so that you can know. They were never really of us. It's not hard to figure out, right? I mean, Judas walked around with the Lord Jesus himself for three years. And Jesus knew from the beginning who he was. Wasn't the least bit surprised. But then finally, and this is, this is really where this comes full circle around to uh, what this whole evening uh, is a part of and uh, what that uh, invitation that uh, Pastor Clint sent out to you uh, is, is all about. Um, spiritually say, the, the spiritually safe pay attention to being anointed. Let's back to the same thing. So why, you know, why, how did you come to have the spiritual interests that you have? Verse 20 of First uh, John 2. And you have an anointing from the Holy One. If you have genuine spiritual interest, that's, that's the only explanation. That's his ultimate explanation. You have an anointing from the Holy One. He started it, and he means to hold it in place. Um, now, there's just, I, uh, I, me I messed up by taking too much time to get here because we're going to have to pass through some ways the important the most important piece but if you if you have your bible look with me at john 8 31 and 32 and then we'll close off on hebrews 2 1 john 8 31 and 32 uh, but particularly verse uh, last half of verse 31 the first half of verse 32 here's what he says if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples. Remember where we start? Perseverance. If you abide in my word, truly you are my disciples. John and Andy stood up here and shared their, their strategies, right, for staying in the word every day. Oh, okay, that's interesting, right? Okay, that was nice. That was, that, that's nice. It's a quiet time strategy, right? Devotional strategy. Not in John's world. Not in John's world. Not in John's understanding of the world in which we live right now. It's not a devotional strategy. That's a survival strategy. That's a survival strategy. It's not a devotional strategy. It's a survival strategy. Why? Because the only hope of survival is this. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Well, what if you don't? Well, then you're not. That's what he means. That's why he puts it that way. 
If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Turn with me one last verse and then we'll wrap it up. Hebrews 2, 1. Hebrews 2, 1. So the whole first chapter of Hebrews is how magnificent Jesus is and how important Jesus is and given the magnificence and importance of Jesus. Yet he has to say this. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. You better pay really close attention to what you've heard. Why? Because you're living in currents that will pull you swiftly into spiritual destruction. That's why. 21 years ago, my nephew got married up in Nova Scotia. I'd never been to Nova Scotia. We went up there. Nova Scotia is famous for the, uh, the, the Bay of Fundy is up there. The Bay of Fundy, is the, that's the, the tide rises and falls 40 feet. So it's the, it's the largest tide in the world. Well, all the way around the bend from the Bay of Fundy is a really popular um, tourist spot called Peggy's Cove. It's absolutely beautiful. There's a little gift shop. It's, written, it's on these rocks. There's a lighthouse there. Um, and the water off of Peggy's Cove looks perfectly calm. But if you're an Olympic swimmer and you fall into the water at Peggy's Cove, you'll never get back up on that rock because the current is so strong that it just pulls you away. And so every year they have somebody, they get down there, they're playing around, they fall in, and then usually two people die, at least. The first one that went in the water and the really good swimmer who dives in to save them. And off they go, and eventually down. Because the current is overwhelmingly powerful. You can't resist it. You can't resist it. Um, If you think the cultural currents we live in right now are like that, they're unbelievably powerful. They're unbelievably powerful. They always are in their own way. But in our, it's just so much right on the surface. They're unbelievably powerful. Every kid walks around with a pornographic store in his pocket. 35 years ago, that was inconceivable. No society would be that stupid. Guess what? We live in one. We live there. And have for a while. That's where we live. And so, you know, this call, man of God training, is a, is a call that, you, you know, in your church here for, it's a spiritual survival call. It's a spiritual survival call. You need one another. You need... You need the word in these ways because we live in times in which the current is tremendously powerful. We need one another to remind each other of that. 
we've got to pay far more careful attention to what we've heard. Why? Because if we don't, the culture will just blow us away. And you watch it blow people away. I've seen it blow my own children away. So I know. I know. So we must pay much more careful attention to the things that we've heard than we usually think is important. But as the Bible has told us, no, no, it's really, really, really important. It's if you abide in my word that you are truly my disciples. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you for the, this group of men who, who gathers and coveting together, covenanting together to encourage one another. By meetings like this, by the group that was mentioned that meets on Fridays, and I'm sure many other groups and many other connections and coming to worship together and going to Sunday school together and getting out our Bibles day by day. Uh, Lord, may you enable us by this anointing to survive the many antichrists who have gone out into the world, who surround us, who seem so normal and everyday and are yet so deadly and dangerous. We ask for your, your protection upon us in such times and through these means. In Jesus' name, amen.